Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In the next two episodes, I'm going to be bringing you some audio I collected recently at a town meeting in Castlemaine about a proposed bioenergy plant. I've split this content in two because this is a hot topic for our town, so it's worth covering fully, and the session went for two hours. But rest assured, I've made it as listenable and informative as possible, but I have edited it to take out all of the live event long pauses and procedural talk about where the loos are, things like that. Even with all that taken out, it's still much longer than my one-hour radio program length. The first episode, this one, is my introduction to the topic and also includes the presentation given by Dean Belfield at the event about the proposed bioenergy plant. My intro and sharing this presentation with you is to give you the background and the context of what everyone is talking about. The following episode will be the Q&A which followed Dean's presentation and at times that got a little bit heated and then after that I have some interviews I did with people as they were leaving the event just to see what they came away with after it all, what they were thinking and feeling after an event like that. So I could have cut a lot more of the audio out and squeezed it into a single hour episode, but I think it's a really important topic for our region to engage with and it's an interesting example of the balance between well-intentioned people busting their guts to create renewable energy sources and trying to move quickly to mitigate climate change and create a safe climate future, which we all want, right? But on the other side of that equation is how do we do the right thing by the local community? So the questions from the audience are really important and understanding how they're thinking and feeling is really important. And so I wanted to give them space and and full attention in this series. It's also fascinating to me that the local sustainability group who do such good work for the community around sustainability and climate action are framed here in this conflict within our community as possibly the bad guys. I find that really interesting and I think that's worth exploring as well. So stay tuned. As ever, before we get into it, I would like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country. Jara country is the traditional home of the Jajawarung people who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. We thank them for the care they've taken and continue to take of country. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So, the bioenergy plant. Before we get into listening to what Dean presented to the community on that night, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context from my point of view because as many of you will remember, I used to work at the sustainability group, MASG, the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, until just recently. And the entire time I was there, the committee were working on and developing this project. So I sort of have a behind-the-scenes perspective on the bioenergy plant. And it's worth noting that MASG, the sustainability group, is at the moment behind the bioenergy plant, but will not have ownership of the plant ongoing. 
So I think that's one of the main concerns from the community is that MASG is not going to have full control over this project for its entire life. MASG created an entity called MAB, Mount Alexander Bioenergy, and that was created to run the project and will be handed over as the project gets taken up by the people who will actually buy in and invest in it and make it happen. So even as an employee of MASG, it took me quite a while to fully understand what they were actually talking about and why a bioenergy plant would even be good for our region. I just kind of wanted a beautiful community wind project like Hepburn Shire has just to the south of us or some solar farm that sheep can graze around. A biodigester is kind of like the ugly stepsister or maybe even the troll under the bridge compared to these other types of renewable energy. It farts and burps and it consumes rotting waste. It's not a romantic image. So I guess I'm saying that I kind of understand people's concerns and also understand how hard it is to communicate exactly why a biodigester is a good idea. However, the Committee of Management at MASG took the time to sit with our staff and outlined what it really was about and presented some pretty convincing arguments, mostly along the lines of, hey, we have to deal with waste. We can't just ship it off somewhere else and ignore it because there's no such places away. And it's not fair on other communities or other parts of the landscape for us to just ship it out and bury it. This is what's got us into this problem in the first place of climate change. You know, this consumerist attitude, right, of just consume, use and dispose. That's that's not what we want. We want to start getting back to a kind of more circular economy way of thinking about, you know, there's no such thing as waste. Anything that could be considered waste is actually a resource. And... Organic waste is a major producer of greenhouse gases if it goes to landfill and a lot of farmers actually just burn off their woody hard waste. So if we can control the flow of organic waste to a plant that can turn it into heat and power, then that's actually a really good outcome. It reduces the greenhouse gases coming from our local tip or landfill and it isn't romantic or pretty but it is super efficient and it also prevents the factory, in this case, Don KR, we'd call it the BACO, it prevents that factory from relying so heavily on electricity supplied from the coal-powered energy grid. And here in Australia, we really desperately need to transition off coal for our electricity supply. And a company like the Bacon Factory are not going to pay extra money to purchase green power. So if we can help them consume less power from the grid by supplying them with power from this bioenergy plant... And we can take care of our organic waste in a better way. Why wouldn't we do those things? But most people in the community did not have the privilege of one of the team from MASG sitting down with them and talking through all of those arguments. And I live at the other end of town from this planned development. So for those people who live right on its doorstep, I can really understand how it's much more immediate for them and much more intimidating. For those listeners who may not know, the sustainability group behind this proposed bioenergy plant, MASG, is a community organisation that has been running for over 15 years. They are not for profit and they're a registered charity. They have a long history of trying to get renewable energy projects up and running in our region. Notably, there have been two really solid efforts at different times with different people involved behind the scenes each time to get both wind and solar up and running and neither of which was successful. So this bioenergy plant is their third attempt to try and get renewable energy in our region. 
which would really go a long way to helping our Shire get to zero net emissions really quickly. So for those concerned about climate change, this is the kind of project that seems like a no-brainer once you understand it. And perhaps this is where the people involved in the project kind of underestimated the amount of resistance they might encounter. So as mentioned before, the proposed plant is on the site of a meatworks called Don Kayar. They import and process a lot of pork products like bacon, and locally it's known as the Baco, as I mentioned. This factory has been in our community for decades, and it's a major employer in our region. It's actually quite an important business in our town, but they're also a major carbon emitter. Recently, the planning process for the bioenergy plant got to a point where, where it could be announced publicly and community consultation could really begin. Until that point, there was no point in talking to the community because Don KR had not signed on and various other factors weren't in place. So unfortunately, due to the limitations of repeated COVID lockdown, it was difficult for MAS to organise community information sessions or meetings about this. Also, I do think that they were not quite as proactive as they could have been about really educating and including the community in this project. Because as I said before, I think a lot of the people who've been involved in it think it's kind of a no-brainer. And of course it should go ahead, <laughs> you know. So when the people who lived nearby heard that there would be a power plant on their doorstep and that it had a thermal process involved, it was easy for them to jump to the conclusion that it was going to be an incinerator. And the lack of meetings and other avenues of education and inclusion really only contributed to the sense people had that this was a big corporate deal they had no power over and that it was sort of done and dusted. And the bioenergy world is complicated and there are many, many different technologies used in lots of different locations around the world, from pure incineration to wet composting. So it was really important to try and clarify with people what exactly the technology in this plant was going to be. But as it's all still in planning and development, MASC actually didn't have exact answers to give. They just had the information that, hey, we're going to be employing people to do this and we'll only employ people who will do it the way we think it should be done, which is with environmental sensitivity and consideration for human health. But without having something locked in, it was really hard to convince people that that's how it would play out. I don't think MASG expected as much pushback as they've had. And that pushback includes an organised response from a group that formed specifically on this issue called CRAB, C-R-A-B, or Castlemaine Residents Against Bioenergy. There have been banners strung up in town with warnings that our town would become the dumping ground of waste from across the state and articles written in the paper arguing against the plant with all sorts of speculations and theories about exactly what technologies might be used and what sort of waste would be accepted into the facility, all of which were not what MASG was actually planning. You can see it's a strange position for a sustainability group whose express purpose is to make our environment cleaner and safer and to reduce emissions, to be in this position of having to defend themselves against accusations of creating something that will be toxic and environmentally harmful. And the truth is that MASG is planning to step back from the project after it's been established and retain an interest in it and some control, but they will not have complete control. So there is justifiable concern in the community. As one person said, you'll hear them in the next episode, they said, we live in a world where there isn't a lot of trust. Why would we trust corporate entities? Why would we trust developers? So as mentioned before, I'm going to start with excerpts from the presentation from MESC about the nature of the proposed facility. What I'm not including is a short introduction by MAS committee member Mary Blaine about 
Mazg's history of working in the community and also her acknowledgement of country, which was quite beautiful. I've also admitted the introduction by John Anstey, who was brought in as a facilitator. He laid some ground rules and explained the structure of the night. That is, that Dean would do his presentation and there would be Q&As afterwards. So after all that long introduction, I'm going to let you listen to Dean and his presentation about the bioenergy plant. So you may remember Dean Belfield from previous episodes of this show. He spoke to us about his life and his work in regenerative agriculture. As Dean is presenting, he is talking to a big room and he's also talking to a projected slideshow and he's often referring to images to help explain some of the concepts that he's talking about. Sometimes he walks away from the mic and I've had to cut some parts of his presentation because he was off mic and you just can't really hear him. And also when he's talking specifically to some images that obviously as a radio show and podcast you can't see, I've simplified or cut those bits. But all of the information and the presentation he made to the room is available on the Bioenergy website. It's bioenergy.net.au. And there is a link to that at saltgrasspodcast.com in the episode description for this episode. And there's all sorts of information there about the Bioenergy Project if you want to go right into the nitty gritty. Anyway, here is Dean. Good evening. Some of you may know me, some of you may not. I've been involved as a project manager with this project since 2014-15. My background as an engineer worked in the sustainability space for most of my career. I live on a farm out and tonight I'm just going to talk to you about the bioenergy project in general. So it's basically an overview of the project bit of the history but you've got a sense of that already but I'll run through that quickly. The pre-construction phase where we're currently at the planning process, because we mentioned we're very early in that process. The technology in the facility, which is both the anaerobic digester and the biomass combined heat and power plant. The community benefits, why this site was selected, the ownership and operation of the plant, should it go ahead. Then environmental issues such as traffic, noise, air quality. Where are we now currently? What's the current activity we're involved with? And of course, the stages in the community engagement. And this is a critical part here. This is the first time we've had the opportunity beyond speaking to the nearest neighbours and some of the local interest groups like the hospital board and a few others that have asked us to share with them a little bit about the bioenergy plant because, for example, the hospital's closely located and they were concerned. So, you know, why are we here? I think we've got a good sense While we're here, there's a macro perspective on that, there's a micro or local perspective on that. We know, maybe a lot of us know that the IPC um, report, which is the international body who I guess is responsible for charting the global course around climate change, which is happening very rapidly on our watch. And so at a local level, one of the questions is, well, what can we do about it? And I know a lot of local people are really concerned about that. And Castlemaine is, is an interesting, it's a, it's a diverse but pretty special community. And, and you, you all know that as well. And we've got the kids for climate initiated in Australia from this community as well. So at many different demographics, there's a strong interest in us, I think, trying to do the right thing by the environment and the community. What is bioenergy? Again, this is not a lecture on bioenergy, but it's simply saying that... You know, we've got the sun that gives us that renewable source of energy ongoingly and that's converted 
through photosynthesis into usable forms of energy in a renewable way. That's been there for a long time and hopefully it will continue to be there for a long time. And we've just gone through this blip for 200 years called the fossil fuel era and we know the impact that is having. So the project overview, we think it's the first community-led integrated bioenergy project of its kind in Australia. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that we've set a goal of zero net emissions, we've set a goal of zero waste, we're embracing this circular economy thinking where there is no waste and that everything keeps circulating in those systems as long as possible. After all, waste is a construct. Nature doesn't know anything called waste. We, we give it that name because we have resources and materials flowing in the system that we feel we have no use for and we dig a hole and we bury them. And that's no longer sustainable, clearly. A percentage of the community, particularly the sustainability group and the council have set respective goals around zero net emissions for 2025 and 2030. And that's to try and fall in line, but perhaps take a bit of a leadership role with what's having at the state government level and at the won't say federal government level, but uh, certainly internationally. The circular economy, which is about shifting our thinking from take, make, waste, so the take, make, waste linear economy model to the circular model, which is about borrow from nature, use and then return. So I think you get the distinction there, and that's critical because one is our future, the other is a doomed future if we continue that according to all the trend lines. And we are very keen if we can get this project up and running to be an exemplar for other communities around the country. So the project history, 2015, that's where the project was initiated via a pre-feasibility study into what we could do in the community and actually started before that with a resource mapping exercise out at Barringup because there was issues around wind and solar. So we were motivated by, well, what is it, what can we do in the community? It's not just about wind, it's not just about solar PV, it's about the whole community, the whole system. So that's how it started and no one actually knew at that time what we could do unless we got some data. So we did a pre-feasibility study and if that didn't look compelling at all, it would have finished there and then. But actually there was enough evidence and data in there to suggest that we had a case and we should explore it further. So we were lucky to get some arena funding, state government funding, um, very generous philanthropic funding from community members to go and do a full-on feasibility study and that lasted for about 18 months and that was put out to tender and we got some terrific responses from those independent parties who led us through that. Coloban Water was involved in that, the council was involved, Don put in a very con small contribution as well but they were not really involved in any way at that stage. And the upshot of that was a bankable business case that demonstrated there was, there was an effective um, rate of return, internal rate of return on the project uh, were it to proceed. And then some people have asked us, and quite reasonably, why is it this suddenly has appeared out of nowhere? Well, it hasn't appeared out of nowhere, but in the last 18, 24 months, we've essentially been on an embargo because we didn't have a project. There was no consent from Dines, there was no term sheet, no agreement, so there's no point telling people that. But there was no big story to tell at that stage. And so here we are in 2021, we've finally got agreement after three years from Don's parent company in the UK to say, the, you know, we need to green ourselves, we need to do this, we need buy energy security, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good thing to do, we'll support it. And so out of that came a high level design, which is a combination of the anaerobic digester, the biodigester, and the biomass combined heat and power plant, which one component of that is the pyrolysis gasification, which we'll talk about. But there's a long way to go. And a lot of that long way to go is around getting the approvals, working with the EPA, because if they knock it on the head, it doesn't happen. So there's very strict 
tram lines that we would have to operate within for, to comply and even to get a permit from them. And then that feeds into a detailed engineering design. And again, there's been questions about why can't you tell us the detail of what this biomass component's gonna look like? Fact is, for people who are familiar with these types of infrastructure projects, there is a step-by-step -step process you go through and you don't know all the detail at this stage. But what you do know is high level, conceptually, what it is you're trying to achieve and then you pass it across after a tendering process to the most eligible, most capable engineering design company who gets involved and they work with the EPA in an iterative manner and listening to community concerns along the way so that you arrive at, if you like, a sweet spot of a project that is going to work, is going to deliver a commercial return because that's not going to happen, it won't work and it does tick the, the environmental community boxes along the way. So it's not as though we actually have worked it all out and we're just sharing the story with you having done it. That's absolutely not true at all. And anyone who's been involved in these types of projects will understand exactly that is the case. So planning process, again, there's a bunch of things we need to do. There's a series of processes with the respective authorities, referral authorities like the CFA, DELP, Coliban Water, Vic Roads, Energy Safe Victoria, Aquas slash Biosecurity, and so on. And they all will ask questions about, well, what is the material type? What are the hours of operation? What are the emissions? What are the, what's the impact on the environment? And so on. And I spent part of yesterday listening to the latest EPA Act, because the EPA has just released a new act, and it's shifted the whole emphasis now from being reactive to proactive. So that makes it even tougher. And ideally, um, that should work in the benefit to, to the benefit of the community. So you don't apologise after an accident's happened, you actually take the mitigating steps beforehand to identify what could happen via risk analyses and so on, and then you make sure it doesn't happen. So the technology component. Those two components I mentioned, anaerobic digestion, which is the simplest way that I can describe that, is that imagine when you look at a cow in a paddock, eating grass, absorbing that solar energy, it's rumen, it's a ruminant, it's got four stomachs and it's essentially an anaerobic digester. And we all know and we've heard that cows issue methane from either end and they're converting that vegetable material, if you like, the plant material into energy and they release gases along the way and that's that natural cycle. In that anaerobic environment, the bugs are doing the job. And out the back, every now and again, comes the digestate, as we call it, in the biodigester world, or the manure. Right? Nutrient-rich, valuable, and so on. It's not waste, absolutely not. So that's the anaerobic digestion side of it, which I'll give some examples of as we move through this. And that's roughly about one megawatt. So it's actually quite a small anaerobic digestion facility that's being proposed. They can get very big, this is not a big one, but it's not a super small one either, because it wouldn't be viable. Then moving across to the biomass technology. So part of our, our thinking is in integrating this is that the anaerobic digester takes essentially wet organic material because it won't, won't, bugs, bacteria do not like breaking down dry material. You know, fungi do that much better than bacteria do, for example. And as you know, when you put timber in a paddock, it sits there for a long time, but it'll eventually broken down by fungi and other bugs and then turned into methane and so on. So you can see where the anaerobic digestion bit fits. The dry organic fraction material, which is timber waste, can be wood chip, can be whatever, that, that goes through that thermal process at a high temperature and depending on which particular technology you're using that gets molecularly cracked if you like in a low oxygen environment which is what we're suggesting 
um, which is pyrolysis gasification technology, and that produces a syngas, which I'll describe shortly, and that syngas is a very clean green gas comprising of a large component of hydrogen. And some people actually with gasification plants or syngas, they, in fact, I was speaking to someone yesterday who's an Australian based out of Melbourne, does a lot of this work, and he's just developing a plant now in Brisbane, and they're bottling that and selling that for vehicles and so on. So these technologies exist, none of them are new. There's a little surprise on the biomass, which I'll show in a few minutes as we walk through, because I think you'll be able to relate to, I'm trying to demystify this, because I know as an engineer, we can get caught up in, in language that can be very confusing. And I don't guarantee I'll demystify it, but I'll try my best, right? So you might have seen photos of big tanks with a dome at the top, and you see them in Europe. There's 10,000 plus of these in Germany. They're in villages that people live next to them. They're all over the place, essentially. They're on farms and so on. And so that tank at the right there, that's a graphic, if you like, with influent coming in, which can be a bunch of different things. Happy to go into that. But just imagine food scraps and whatever. And in this case here, it will also be meat waste, like soft, not hard, dry stuff, but soft, wet meat waste from the Don's facility. And why that's attractive to them is that at the moment that's because it's imported pork and there's no disguising that, a lot of it is, they're heavily controlled by quarantine rules. And so if they don't cook the living daylights out of that in the heat treatment plant, which some of you perhaps who live close will know there's a big shed up the back on the hill there, which is a high temperature, effectively a rendering plant. And you might smell it and you might hear it from time to time but that's what that is all about. They wouldn't have a license to operate unless they had that facility there. Then it, after it's been cooked, it goes off to landfill. Not all the time do they get to cooking it because sometimes if they've got this flood and the plant can't handle it, flood of meat rather, waste, they then send it straight to landfill. But it has to go to deep burial because it's contaminated, essentially considered contaminated. I mean, it may not be contaminated, but there's a risk there that it could be carrying pathogens. Right? So that gets buried in a very deep hole, costs them a lot of money to do, goes a long way away. That's not a good model and we said to them in the early discussions well you know we can build a facility that can take care of that and so therein lies a, obviously a deeper discussion about how that works and so on. So what comes out of that tank is the biogas which is majority methane but there are other gases there and you have to scrub in other words clean out things like hydrogen sulphide which is rotten egg gas which can be smelly so the technology is standard and proven it's very common and that's what happens and then you're left with a usable high-value biogas. So moving on without going into the detail of that, there are similar plants in Victoria. We are arranging a site visit for some of the Don's executives in, well, it was to be last week actually, but COVID screwed that up, so it's going to happen in a couple of months. But um, we're happy to share, and I think we have on our Q&A, where these sites are located in Victoria, and there's a whole number of them um, in the process of being developed at the moment. So coming to the biomass plant, so when the feasibility study was done, the people who did it were experts in anaerobic digestion and they've got a plant in Western Australia that's been running for five years and, and what they proposed was almost identical to that would be used here. So if people want to know about it, and I know some people have jumped on the web and had a look to see a little bit about that, that information is there, there's nothing to hide and it's just a copy of what's done in the UK and Germany and so on. But from a biomass point of view, which is the hard woody waste, and there's a lot of that in the region, the model that was used for that was based around a classic boiler scenario. So imagine you put wood chips into a boiler, generates a lot of heat and steam, and out of that steam it gets fed into a machine which turns it into electricity. Beaufort Hospital's got that one right behind it. Skipton Hospital's got exactly the same unit right behind it. 
again, they're very common, and that's basically a combustion process for organic dry woody waste material, which they chip up to make it uniform and easily you know, handled. So in this case, what we were looking to do is to go one step beyond that, and that is produce the steam, produce the energy, but at the same time, if we can produce biochar as a co-product out of that, we can involve the agricultural sector. And why that is important is because a large footprint from an environmental and emissions point of view is due to synthetic fertilisers, which comes from fossil fuels. And it is massive when you look at it across Australia's inventory and you know, carbon footprint. And, and we know that that's not sustainable either. So there's a big movement around regenerative agriculture to actually link more synergistically with biological processes because that is what's going to restore our land. Because the UN says we've got 60 years or 60 seasons of topsoil left on the planet, and it's the topsoil that grows our food, and without the food, we don't exist either. So it is actually, it's not to be ignored by any means. So we thought, well, we can do something about that. What if we generate a thermal process that's going to give us the same outcome to support the energy that dons are interested in, reduces our emissions and we can give something back to the farmers as a biostimulant. And we can combine that with rock dust and we can combine that with the digestate that comes out of the anaerobic digester. So I know I'm at risk at diving into a little bit of detail, but there were some questions that came through and it's great to get the questions that the digestate, why don't we just turn that into fertilizer and forget the biomass plant? Well, we can't just turn that into a fertiliser because, it, remember, it's got the waste from Don's in there, the pig meat, if you like, pork and other meat, that is prescribed. It's arguably contaminated, and so they won't allow you just to treat that like a normal digestate. You just can't spread it out on a farm, for example. It's not allowed. The EPA won't permit that. Biosecurity Australia won't permit that. I've been speaking to them recently about it. And we've yet to find out the detail, but it's, some of those aspects are pretty clear. But what we can do is take the water out of it, use that digestate, which is full of nutrients and minerals, feed it into the biomass thermal plant and help produce biochar. So again, we're working towards this notion of zero waste wherever we can, keeping the emissions down, supporting the local economy and building on that circular economy concept. So, by the way, when we talk about feedstock, and I talked to my wife about this and she goes... What's animal food doing going into a biomass thermal plant? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, feedstock, isn't that animal food? So I said, no, well, I know, that's just the expression that's used. So she warned me that I'd better explain that to you tonight, otherwise people might think it's animal food that's being combusted or something or other. So essentially, for these types of facilities, what goes in very much influences what goes out, and what goes in also influences what you can do with it. So it's not just the quality of material, but it's the composition of the material. So we've said right from the outset, and I know maybe we've yet to convince some people, but we're absolutely adamant and we can only say it as we see it and tell the truth as we see it. But our principle from day one is we won't accept any toxic material. We won't accept any non-organic material, um, with one exception, which I'll come to. But at least 80 or 90% of what goes through, if not more, is all organic material. and. On that basis, we can manage a process responsibly that gives us a known outcome. And it's not going to give the toxic emissions that people justifiably might be very concerned about. So I mentioned digestate from the anaerobic digester can be used. There's no mixed waste. So when you talk about incinerators, and I know that term's been used a little bit, and I'll come to that too, there's no mixed waste going into this at all. There's no toxic waste, there's no other plastics other than that small stream, which is a low-density polyethylene, which breaks down into hydrogen 
and carbon and oxygen, essentially. Molecularly, it's pretty simple. It's basic chemistry. What we have said, anything else, particularly vinyls, we're not interested, we will not accept. And, and you know, vinyls, PVC and so on. And only ways to prove by the EPA will be accepted. I mentioned about biochar, that the value of that, you can activate that, put fungi in and so on, and it's a terrific bioadditive and fertiliser and so on, put into the topsoil, etc., etc. There have been questions about stack height, and stack height, according to the EPA and other parties I've spoken to, I mean, that's not my skill set in designing stacks and this technology, but the, the, the information is there. Stack height is sort of proportional to the quality material going in, and if you go into the city and you see a stack that goes to hundreds of metres in the air, potentially, that's because there's something nasty and they're trying to push it out into the higher air turbulent streams to take it away. So there's an image of a pyrolysis gasifier. Again, that's not necessarily what we'd be using, but people want to see, they want to look and feel, get a sense of it. That's a bit longer than the length of a 25 metre swimming pool. That gives you an idea of material comes in one end, it goes through those thermal combustion or, or cracking processes, then it's clean, then it says wet scrubber on the right hand side there. That's, there's three different technologies, but they're all related and they're all about taking particulates out of the flue gas, if you like, that's coming out of it, so that it is safe to breathe. And the EPA are on that like a hawk. Again, that's known technology. But let me say, emissions can be cleaned using standard technology, using the scrubbers and cyclones, electrostatic precipitators and so on, and they're just fancy terms, engineering terms, for that filtering process. Some of the community benefits, 88,500 tonnes of emission reduction. I mean, that's actually a massive number, and, but that doesn't include the biochar. If we include the biochar component, and these come from a lot, an extensive life cycle analysis from the Australian Renewable Energy Authority, so they've got smart people who are doing this. If we included biochar, that would be close to maybe exceeding 100,000, which is a big number, and that would take care of a large percentage of the shires and certainly the town emissions. Um, and that's achieved by diverting 36,000 tonnes of the waste that's going into both those facilities from landfill. Because when it goes into landfill, unless you've got special equipment to capture the methane, it will generate the methane. And the methane has a greenhouse potential or warming factor between 25 and 27 times carbon dioxide. So it's massive. The amount of energy that the facility will produce is about 270,000 gigajoules. Gigajoules is not a familiar term for a lot of people, so we convert it into megawatt hours. 75,000 megawatt hours a year. So the average household uses about, in, probably in this town, maybe about 15 kilowatt hours a day. The question of site, why, why in that particular site that's been earmarked? That's a great question. Well, part of the feasibility study, again, that was a remit of the consultants to go and look at eight sites across the region. Cut a long story short, there were two that sort of made the short list. One was down at the, the landfill near the wastewater treatment plant and the landfill for the council down there, and the other was next to Don's. And why? Because to make these plants viable, you've got to get, try and get behind the metre rather than in front of the metre. You don't want to put it, sell it back to the grid, they pay you nothing for it, and then buy it back at a high price. It just doesn't work. So to get behind the metre, it's what everyone's doing, logical reasons, just like you have with solar panels on your roof. You don't sell all the solar energy, then buy it back. You use it all first, and if there's any left, you sell that, right? We all do that, and it's the same idea here. So it was a pretty exhaustive process with weightings and criteria and so on that ended up selecting the Don site. They weren't involved in any of this, by the way. They didn't even know about it, but it was, it was a potential site that had been identified. And mainly because they had a, 
a big waste stream, that there was a problem for them that was readily available, and also they needed energy in the form of electricity, gas, and steam heat. So they needed all that, and this bioenergy plant, as proposed, won't even quite reach 20% of their total energy needs. So it's a small but an important contribution for them. So here Dean shows the audience a site map at the proposed facility. He describes the size, location and some of the activity that might happen on site in terms of trucks moving in and out. I've cut that out because he was off mic and you can't really hear him. And all of that information, if you're interested, is on the website bioenergy.net.au on their resources page. They have a downloadable copy of the handout that was given out at this meeting and also the presentation that Dean made. So feel free to check that out if you want to know more about the actual site and where the building's going to sit on location and how many trucks and things might move in and out. If you get a sense of that 200 metre long, 50 metre wide footprint, the trucks come in one side, they dump their waste into a big shed which is under negative pressure which means the odours don't escape. It's like hospitals where they have operating theatres and so on. They try and keep the bugs out and do everything under negative pressure. Same concept. This is applied everywhere um, where you have these types of facilities. And then the trucks come out, they get washed and they go back onto the road. So again, we don't control any of that. This is, the EPA determines how that process functions very rigorously. So you just got to fall in line with it. One of the assumptions that we made at the outset is that, and it didn't even occur to us that people might see this as an incinerator, which it absolutely is not. But again, I can understand that if we don't explain it and clarify that and provide the facts, then that, that conclusion could be reached. So that's why we're having these sessions and that's why we're doing our best to provide factual information that we can substantiate to explain this. So on the left-hand side, that, that's an industrial incinerator that takes municipal solid waste, which is basically anything that either would otherwise go into the landfill that can't be recycled or reused or organic, and it gets burned. It's tyres, it's all sorts of things, right? So I really wanted to distinguish. It's not an incinerator, there's nothing toxic going in there, and we're not taking these mixed municipal wastes. It's just all organic material. So the ownership and operation, at the moment, Mount Alexander Bioenergy is currently 100% owned by MAS. That ownership share will diminish over time as investors come on board. But MAS will guarantee, will seek a guaranteed seat on the board because we want to have influence. We make sure that the project proceeds into the future as per the original intention and vision that got us to this point that's motivating us as a community project. And that's one of the reasons why we call it a community project. It's not the only reason. And the intention is that from the revenue, there will be a social dividend and a minor revenue stream to support future projects. And Mary, at the beginning, outlined all the things that MASC does, and there's an awesome amount of things that MASC and other like bodies in the community, and there are a number of those, as MASH and, and others and so on, all, I think, doing a fantastic job for this local community. And largely, it's, it's energised by volunteer effort. And that, in a sense, is not sustainable. So to have an ongoing annuity stream that would allow these types of community projects to function, I think has enormous value. And that's something that we place a high priority on going forward in terms of the structure and ownership model. So MAB will be responsible for the operation, but clearly we don't have the expertise to run it. So that will be done by another party under strict contractual arrangements. And similarly, the contracts will relate to how traffic movements occur, the compliance with the EPA, the feedstocks and so on. And it's in no one's interest to try and thwart those. 
because they will lose their business. You know, the, the waste collection companies, it's not in their interest to, it'll be all over the media, they'll lose their contracts. So mostly people will toe the line. Enlightened self-interest is pretty powerful. So there's questions around traffic, and I guess the net position here, because there will be fewer trucks taking contaminated waste away from Dons, because that'll all be diverted through into the bioenergy facility. So there's a, there's a minus, or like a reduction there, but there will be an increase of some trucks coming in from outside to bring some of the waste that, because the local community cannot supply 13,500 tonnes of that, from the township I'm talking about, of dry woody waste, nor 22,000, 23,000 tonnes of um, organic wet waste to the digester. Given that Dons each day have about 30 large truck movements and about 600 small vehicle movements, we think that an extra three to five truck movements per day is probably within the bounds of acceptability, but there is a traffic plan and the council's across that. We're involved in looking at that now. The EPA will be across that. So we, we feel reasonably comfortable that there are sufficient safeguards to manage that in an effective way for the community. And the trucks are all sealed. They have to comply and so on. So I won't go into the detail of that. Noise. So anaerobic digester is largely silent. The bugs don't make a lot of noise. There might be some, the odd occasion where some fans and pumps and so on kick in. That will occur and they can be silenced and there's, there's plenty of case studies where they just, the facility, the housing that you saw before, they might have to put buffering inside there to reduce that noise so it's not, so it fits within the EPA limits for a start and the operation hours and so on. So the air quality, people have talked about noise, air quality and so on, that's all relevant. What we're essentially saying is that they will diminish because after the waste treatment plant on the hill for Dons, when that's closed down over time, that will disappear. So the source, a lot of the noise, emissions and so on won't be there because there'll be no need for it. So as you can appreciate, there's a lot in this. It's hard to do it justice in a short period of time. I'm doing my best. We'll move into Q&A, John. So you're the master of the ceremonies here. So thank you for listening. I hope that was useful. I'm going to take a seat now. So that was Dean Belfield explaining the proposed bioenergy plant as best he could to a hall full of people. As mentioned earlier, information is available on this issue at bioenergy.net.au on the resources page there. They have a downloadable copy of the handout that was given out at this meeting. Also, MASG is very happy to take questions and comments and there are more meetings planned in the next couple of months. Notably, there's one on the 21st of September with the Environmental Protection Authority, the EPA, which would be a really good one for people to get along to if they're concerned about what the, the rules really are Members of the community are encouraged to get involved and ask as many questions as you can to make sure that you are good with this. And also know that community consultation is a really important part of this whole process. And so now is the time, if you have problems or objections to this, now is the time to talk to council and, you know, your voice matters on this topic. Next episode, I'm going to share with you the Q&A session that happened just after Dean had made the presentation that you've heard today. It was at times a little volatile as many people had a lot of questions and also a lot of serious concerns about the project. I will also have some reflections people shared with me as they left about how helpful they felt the night had been. 
There are links to lots of other things discussed on the show in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. For those of you listening on Main FM and 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. If you can't find Saltgrass on your podcasting app, just let me know and we'll see what we can do to make it available there. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, 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 Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.